All right. Hey, everybody. We're back at Solidarity Hall. This is Elias Krim, and I'm here with Pete Davis. Hi, everyone. And we are going to do a little different kind of episode today, a bit briefer and slightly more focused. I don't know if you ever could call our podcast focused, because um, <laughs> <laughs> then that wouldn't be very interesting. That's our idea. However, um, Pete, you had a very interesting experience um, week before last with the bicentennial of the Harvard Law School at which you were waiting, you know, uh, time bomb ticking in hand <laughs> to, lob, <laughs> to lob some excitement into an otherwise probably fairly beige event. So tell us how that came off. Yeah, so, um, well, I've, I've been a student here for three years. I'm in my final year here. And the what I've been focused on for most of my time here uh, in, in my internal politics at HLS has been trying to have the school live up to its public interest mission. So right now, 80% of students go into corporate interest law uh, after they graduate. And because 80% of students go into corporate interest law, it, it pulls the entire culture of the school in that direction. So, you know, all the examples are, let's say you're a lawyer for a Wall Street bank or, you know, let's say you're a lawyer for a white collar defense, you know, case or something like that. And um, and my goal is to switch that around and have a majority of students go into public interest law, thus changing the culture of the place uh, to uh, to be to be focused on, you know, civics and public spiritedness. And this is important because, you know. In the health system, you have uh, watchdogs of the health system. You have the National Institute of Health. You have the CDC. You have this whole public health concept. Mm -hmm. But in the justice system, we only have the law schools. And the people that are going to be the National Institute of Justice, the idea of a public justice education and system, just like a public health system, has to be done at these major law schools. And so – Hopefully, if we can change Harvard, we can start changing some other places, too. And um, and we sure need it because, you know, there's a lot of crises in the law. Eighty six percent of civil legal needs of the poor go unmet. So that's, you know, domestic violence victims not getting restraining orders. That's people getting kicked out of their houses. That's uh, veterans not getting their benefits. You know, the prison system has ballooned eightfold. Mm -hmm. You know, the 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 law is being distorted in the direction of corporate interests and so um, taking away people's right to you know sue giant companies people's right to have their own contracts with companies and um, and so yeah so you know I, I I add a little bit of a and so I wrote a whole report called our bicentennial crisis to try to uh, be a be like a call to action uh, to change the culture of this place oh, very good very good you saw this coming. You you had enough time to get this thing lined up well in advance and then do some interviewing, do some research. And I take it you just saw an opportune moment with the bicentennial event. You got the record, the Harvard Law record on board as, I guess, the publisher, right? Yeah. Yeah, they were the publisher of it. Yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, and we printed up 2,000 copies. And, and I found, you know, some pretty wild um, – uh, data in here that that was very shocking, you know, and um, not just about Harvard specifically, you know, there's some shocking stuff in there. Like, for example, if you make double the net worth of the average American family, you are in the bottom quarter of the income bracket 
at Harvard Law School if your family does, according to the available data. But also stuff about the justice system as a whole, like, for example, the top 200 American law firms bring in $96 billion in revenue each year. So $96 billion for the top 200 law firms. So that's not even all of the law firms. That's just the top 200, $96 billion in revenue. The amount of money that goes to all legal services for the poor Mm -hmm. is $1.39 billion. So um, it's pretty wild. You know, a major company came in to speak to our class. Classic, of course, we're going to have the general counsel of a corporation, not of Uh a civic group coming in to speak to the class. But they revealed their annual legal budget. And it it wasn't even a top 100 largest company. They revealed their annual legal budget, and it was $250 million a year. And I, I asked him, I said, you know, five of you is the annual, you have a, a fifth of the annual legal budget for all poor people in America, wow. <laughs> just wow. for your, your one company that does this one little thing. Um, and so uh, we, we've got to change things around if we believe in equal justice under law. But there's also civic elements for non-lawyers too, which I can get into because I don't want this to just be about uh, one specific uh, institution. Yeah. yeah. And, and I take it uh, where you were going here is partly directed at uh, the school, but really it's much broader than that because the school has probably sort of a mixed bag of amelioration and programs and, you know, steps in this direction. So you were trying to reach a, a wider audience, I take it. Yeah, you know, I'm part of one, just to bring in some personal stuff here, two of my heroes are, you know, I one of my heroes is Ralph Nader and... Um, mm-hmm. For especially for his work in the 70s. And he basically reinvigorated the public interest law movement. But what was so special about him is that he challenged every single uh, profession and institution to have a public interest spirit inside of him. So he started working with you know, Cy Hirsch, who was a public interest doctor. And the way my family actually got connected with Ralph was my dad was part of a pub, the public interest anthropology movement. Huh. And, um, and it was anthropologists had used to before the 60s and 70s, and my dad was part of the change in this. Um, w- anthropologists used to see themselves as like this totally neutral, you know, academics whose sole job is to like come back to the West and talk about the int- fascinating tribes or something like that, uh-huh. you know, that they found on some island somewhere. But what the public interest anthro movement was anthropologists should be serving the public and especially serving the, um, and so there were two branches of them. One was you should serve the public to turn your eyes as anthropologists on Western powers and kind of, um, criticize and analyze them. You know, don't just analyze these you know, don't just analyze an Amazonian tribe, analyze the Department of Defense with your anthropology skills. The other part, and that's kind of what uh, Nader's sister, Laura Nader, was into. Hmm. Um, and I think that's why Ralph was drawn to my, uh, found out about my dad. But my dad was in the other half of an- uh, public interest anthro, which was um, being an advocate for the the indigenous peoples that you are, you know, well-versed in their culture. So if you can know their culture and you can also translate their needs and interests to Western power to open up power to them and get them a seat at the table, your job should be to facilitate that. And um, and what I love about this is this spirit of public interest can be in any profession. You know, anyone 
can think about how can we have our profession serve uh, serve the interests of the many and not the few, because there's a fight to be had in every profession. Yeah. This is the restoration of what you might call civic courage. Yes. Amen. Something, something yeah. along those lines. Now, tell me, Pete, about the reaction reactions, various, no doubt, that you got uh, when you unveiled uh, this report a couple of weeks ago. From uh, props, yeah, so from students, from... My, my main audience is... Yeah, so one, the, the way that the administration... I'll start with a negative first and end on a positive note. The <laughs> negative note is the administration has gotten very smart. The administrations have gotten very smart with internal critiques. Mm-hmm. Actually, administrations of everything, not just universities. But yeah. it, the smartest thing to do is um, is not respond at all and pretend it doesn't exist. Um <laughs> Like if you start saying, you know, the student is is wild, and, you know, the student has it all wrong, then uh-huh. a newspaper has quotes from each side and they yeah. want to publish a story. Yeah. If you say nothing, and I've had some major newspapers tell me this, you know, we wanted to publish it, but you know, if the administration's not going to react, if the administration's <laughs> not going to react, there's no news. Yeah. And so they're trying to silence me out. But the way you have to push at that is to force a reaction and. And um, the way that I'm planning on doing that is through some of the positive things that have happened, which is some professors have written to me, some public interest students that I'm not converting, but have like self-doubt. Like a lot of times Hmm. I wanted to arm public interest minded students and faculty and staff with um, with like the data that they could use to, to advance this fight. And a lot of them are grateful for that. And a lot of um, first years are talking about it and there's conversations being had among first years. And it's like, I have them like physically all around the school, um, like 2000 hard copies. And they're like, everywhere I see them in all the corners. And I hope that people pick them up and then like, they're like, Oh, are you reading that? What's the conversation? And I've heard that that's happening Mm -hmm. and you got to get the young folks because the older folks have already committed Mm -hmm. to working in corporate interest law. And once that happens, you know, they're already rationalizing their reason for doing it. So You know, they don't want to hear anything that goes against uh, that. It's a, you know, classic psychology thing there, Um, which we're all, which we all, which we all suffer from. You know, I don't want to hear now that I'm the guy who wrote this book, you know, it's hard for me to hear facts that counter what I'm writing. So, Mm -hmm. you know, but, um, but uh, I think that's a phenomenon that's happening. Right. Cool. Cool. So this, in other words, this campaign is not over. You're waiting for sort of the next phase here. Yeah. So I'm actually, I'm taking, I had 12 proposals Hmm. about how to change the school and how to change legal education. And, um, and, uh, I'm going to now convert it into mini campaigns because, you know, there aren't that many, there are some like the public interest folks will sign on to all 12, Uh but if I need to get to a majority of the school, I need to split them up into different causes um, and oh. then get majorities in ad hoc on each of those. And that's what I'm going to try to do. You know, you don't have to agree with me on everything, but if you agree with me on this, let's work on this together. And, um, there's, there's like changes in the curriculum, changes in admissions, changes in the culture, changes in career paths, some of the uh, career advising, some of the ones that might be applicable to people outside of law, um, that might be interesting to them. Mm-hmm. Um, just law, like legal education and legal profession as a public policy uh, issue for everyone. I'll talk about two. Uh, one is there is hardly any discussion on what I call law as lawyers as a civic good. 
So here's a quick schema for you. Many people think of law as a luxury good. You know, if you can earn enough money and decide to allocate your money to get a lawyer, you deserve a lawyer. So I've had a lot of like conservative, you know, uh, libertarians think that way about lawyers. Uh-huh. Um, it's like Alexis, you know, you don't have an entitlement to it. Um, that's one group of people. The second group of people, which is everyone else, um, is law as like a welfare state, social democracy entitlement, yeah. positive, positive right, mm-hmm. like housing, health. Um, you know, no one should have, you know, not many people. It, health is kind of moving beyond this now among lefties, but let's say housing, you know, not many people in America are saying, you know, everyone should have the same house, but um, we're saying everyone should have a house, you know, like kind of like a, mm-hmm. a stamp floor that like social Democrats are advocating for. That's where most people are with lawyers. You know, OK, some people can have really fancy lawyers, but we just need to make sure no one's caught without a lawyer. And we're very earnestly fighting for that. But this is not the original idea of what lawyers were. The original idea was a third thing. It's a civic good where everyone has equal access to the law. Mm -hmm. And actually, the ideal is that everyone should have the equal amount of legal power. It's like a vote. You know, it's it's much more like a vote than like public housing. I see. Mm -hmm. It's um, and people call you a communist for that or people call you super radical. But. It, it it's only one click away from, you know, we say everyone should have equal justice under law. Mm-hmm. It's very well established that you need a lawyer to have equal justice under law. So everyone should have the same lawyer power at, when you're in court. And the equivalent I sometimes give is, you know, it's as if we had not enough voting booths for people <laughs> and Instead of saying, hey, we got to fund enough voting booths for people. This is a civic good that everyone needs equal access to. We say, oh, it's OK. Bill Gates gets five voting booths. Yeah. And, um, you know, and there's no voting booths within 80 miles of you. And maybe we can start a bus service. Right. That some people can use to get voting if they really feel passionate about having a vote. Right. You know, right. <laughs> that's where we're at with this. It should be everyone has a voting booth. Everyone should have a lawyer. Um, and that's the idea there. So right, and, um, and you shouldn't have to buy a ticket to get in the booth. <clears throat> you should have to buy a ticket to get in the booth. Yeah, no, it's um, it's 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 the cost of equal justice under law. You yeah, know? yeah. You know, I guess um, I, one thing that comes to mind in this kind of critique is the uh, the dilemma of um, from from a kind of regulatory perspective, uh, the fact of uh, deregulation and and uh, the, you know. The way in which we were, we have sort of abandoned uh, any effort to push back against monopolistic practices, kind of in the corporate side and all that. All this big kind of forty thousand foot stuff, and so that's that's very important. It's very big. It's very hard to get your arms around. Um, and then there's also something that you and I uh, tend to think about. I think maybe a little more frequently is more like. Um, law on the ground, the sort of grassroots need for um, legal or civic agency, right? And so how do we, you know, how do we, how would your proposal impact um, our our ability to regain our civic capacity through reforms in the law? Yeah, there's um, one of the things that, you know, when people think about law, they think about, um, and lawyers, uh, they think about like suing people, 
mm-hmm. or defending yourself against being sued or, you know, I committed a crime or I'm, I'm being charged with one and there's that. But there's actually this whole history of lawyers as like civic creators and lawyers as facilitators of civic creation and civic organization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this incredible quote. I'm going to pull it up. Um, by Edgar Kahn. Edgar Kahn's probably the greatest thinker about this. He, he and his wife helped start the idea of legal services. They were the ones who got legal yeah. services into the great society bills of the Johnson administration. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, what Kahn said, um, he, I'm going to, I'm going to actually, I think I'm going to, I think it's worth reading from, uh, because it's, it's amazing to show the difference in how we think about this stuff. Um, so let me pull up, uh, what they said is they said, if lawyers are continuous and effective rather than nominal and sporadic. So their idea was to have neighborhood law firms in every community, not like that would just be present in the community and be there like your neighborhood baker or your neighborhood policeman or your neighborhood mail carrier. Mm -hmm. Um, here are some things that they can do in addition to, you know, suing you when you know you want to sue or defending you against an eviction when you know you're being evicted or, you know, here's what continuous and effective lawyering can do. They can make government decision processes visible to the community so they can tell you, hey, there's a decision process that's happening. It's going to affect you. They can compel government responsiveness to community concerns so they can add teeth to your protests. They can transfer information from the community to government administrators in legal language. Um, And I'm reading off of Khan's examples here. They can ascertain and vindicate rights in areas of low visibility to law enforcement. So for example, you know, if people are being sexually harassed in, um, if, if let's say domestic workers, which is one of the most low visibility workers in America, they're, you know, home health aides, nannies, they're inside of apartment buildings. You don't even know, like every apartment building in America is a workplace if there's a home health aid there. And if a lawyer's there and they know what, you know, a lot of them have, you know, there's violence committed against them, there's sexual assault committed against them, they can, they, the law enforcement officer might be a lawyer there that knows that something's going wrong, that that tell, say, an immigrant domestic worker, hey, you know what your person's doing to you is is illegal, you know, and not only like if you don't have to stay there, you know, you can leave and you can get money to leave from them um, for what they've done to you. Provide legal representation in contexts which appear to be non-legal and where no right can yet be asserted. And he gives a great example of this. A principal orders all boys to come to school dressed in coats and ties without regard to the economic burden this imposes upon the parents. It was in the 1960s when he wrote this, so maybe that doesn't happen as often now. But, you know, something can happen in the community and they might not know that there's some legal issue and a community lawyer that's continuous and effective rather than nominal and sporadic can do that. And then the final thing he said is they can help nurture the growth of embryonic civic organizations. Simple stuff, you know, like, hey, let me help start a nonprofit let me show you some funding streams you can get, things like that. Um, and uh, once you start thinking about lawyers that way as, you know, just like as kind of just people who are bilingual in government eats and, yeah. Um, yeah. and normal person, you know, English, you know, it's like that's um, – then you start thinking about their civic potential. And 
One final thing, and I'll stop laughing about this. There are so many examples of creative lawyers. The ESOP, Employee Stock Ownership, which is one step on the way to a worker cooperative, Mm -hmm. was invented by a lawyer, Louis Kelso, um, who found in the tax law the way that it could be done. Mm -hmm. So uh, a good example there. Yeah. Sorry to defend lawyers, I know, but... No, that's good, that's good. <laughs> you know, and, my, and, and it does remind me of your earlier point about uh, Ralph looking at different industries and finding ways to um, really uh, come at them for their hyper-professional, um, you know, uh, oligopolist, oligopolistic uh, practices. Um, in a similar way, I think I mentioned in our earlier conversation, Strong Towns. Strong Town is an example of a guy taking uh, urban planning as a profession, you know, a very uh, kind of black box process. Uh, you, you, Mr. Citizen, don't, don't inquire, you know. We're not interested yep. really in your opinion. Uh, this is all a matter of math. Uh, it's all a matter of code books um, and regulation. Uh, there's nothing to see here, nothing to talk about. So Chuck is going around the country saying, uh, you know, we, we need to democratize some of this knowledge. We need to empower people to understand better how cities are built, you know, how cities are made, what, what are the forces contending here, but in a very kind of literal way, because he's very much interested in, for example, helping people understand that there's a thing called a strode, which is a word that Chuck uh, made up. A strode is a hybrid between a street and a road, right? A a street is a place that you walk down and look at things. And and where if there's any traffic, it has to proceed uh, quite slowly because there's lots of pedestrians. A road is a way to get from one town to the other, you know, presumably at 40 or 50 miles an hour or better. If you have a town in which, you know, there's something at about 30 miles an hour going right down the middle of your town, what you've created is a strode, which which does neither well, which does neither well. And this is a complicated thing to understand. Isn't that a great concept? It explains a lot of bad city building. I love that. The way we have screwed (laughs) up, we have screwed up our cities. Um, by, you know, not realizing that we have two contrasting ambitions here uh, colliding. One of them having to do with with, with the Main Street and the needs of the Main Street and the other having to do with those people in cars who are in a hurry. What I love about this is is what these types of people do is they they remember – one thing I'm noticing about that is they remember what what the original intent – of like different things were and remind us, you know, like calling back to, Hey, what's the point of X? What's the point of Y? Because it becomes so rote Mm -hmm. when you've been in a profession for so long. And when it's Mm -hmm. lost in the generations that you're like, Oh, you learn to do this and you do that. And this is what you do. And in every profession, you know, there's an original idea of that. And there's an original idea for a road and for a street. There's an original idea for tort law. There's an original idea for the Hippocratic oath. You know, like there's all these, um, there's an original idea of why a classroom is set up in a certain way by teachers and like the people that, that return to that heritage and find the original seeds of, of like what, what the best of the profession was, you know, they're doing This is the important work. Um, Mm -hmm. what I, what I love about, you know, one way I've thought about Nader's model um, of change is that 
it's a theory of it's a theory of civic revival among many. Um, but there's so few theories of civic revival that when there's another one, you always get very excited. So <laughs> I'd say the, the the main the two main ones that are popular today. Is it okay if I go down this route? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the two main ones that are popular today, I'd say, is the kind of hands-off, kind of liberal technocratic one is, oh, technology will fix things, progress will fix oh, things. Yeah. You know, things will always get better. The That's smart city. We're all going to live in the yeah, smart city. Yeah, the smart city. city. Oh, you know, wait till Google comes out with the next thing. <laughs> you know, or, you know, or finally we are all elected and all of our wants can come in there and take Absolutely. all the ideas off the shelf and implement them. The left, the like kind of hardcore, the like aesthetic leftist idea is the civic revival is the day that the mass march happens. You know, one day when we all take the streets and burn down all the institutions, you know, then like, and everyone is awoken and like this idea, you know, that's, uh, that's, you know, the day that the the revolution comes. Um, and obviously I'm paraphrasing here. No one's like a pure form of this, but I think at our worst, we get too far in our pure form. Nader's was interesting. Nader's was, his theory is that people in their area of expertise, which he believes kind of in a democratic faith, he believes everyone has some area of expertise, um, in their little corner of the world, be it local and professional, they take a corner of their time to um, and a corner of like a, a segment of their time and a segment of their energy to to like pull that corner towards the public interest. It's kind of like this huh. this civic work for like a few hours a week or something mm-hmm. idea mm-hmm. that doctors can hold the healthcare system accountable, lawyers can hold the legal system accountable, parents can hold their schools accountable, huh. and it's it's kind of this. Um, I like it because it's like a good-natured American like idea of like you know you give part of your time to your family, you give part of it to yourself, you give part of it to your interests, and like if you, we we just need part of it to the public, and um, and that's his like public citizen idea, and um, and I like the and I like the idea of like a small like a group of people in every profession could wake up every profession and in every institution, and you know there's there's a lot of uh, this taken to the extreme isn't enough because, you know, there's going to be need to be more than just kind of a few good natured people. There, there probably will need to be some stuff in the streets. There probably will need to be some technology. There probably will need to be other new forms. But at the very least, that's a start, yes. I think. Yes. <laughs> um, and, um, and it's very accessible and it seems possible. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting to think about how far, you know, might that go? Um, in other words, citizen empowerment um, and my own interest in the way, particularly in the global south, you know, there's all this talk about the right to the city. Um, there's some very interesting books out there um, about cities that are very informal. This term informal is very interesting. It's, it's, yep. uh, it's a kind of a fancy way of saying uh, slums. You know, uh, favelas, Um, you know, there are books with titles like Shadow Cities, Planet of Slums, um, Radical Cities, Rebel Cities. Um, I was reading that the city of San Francisco now has an ID card. Actually, I think New York has one also. And so if you live there, if you have a home address, 
That's, that's the only qualification. It is regardless of your immigration status also. Yeah. And certain things come with it. Um, minor, I guess, really, but, but still entitlements of a sort. And so the question is, you know, where might this go? Um, a, a form of citizenship which is very local, uh, that in some ways uh, contends against uh, notions of national citizenship, or could. Um, and if you dig into this further, it turns out it frequently has a lot to do with people that have been on the edges of urbanization, people that are actually more at the peripheries, really, than they are in the civic center. Um, they are often sort of victims of dispossession. Um, I was reading that in the city of Beijing, um, I guess it's over the, the last few years, I'm not sure how many, three million people have been dispossessed just in that city. Wow. So there, there's this talk, mostly on, on the left, of something called a right to the city. And it goes back to a man named Ernest Lefebvre, who was writing back in the 60s about a right to urban life. And now uh, David Harvey uh, has been writing about uh, this notion. And um, it's still being formulated, but it's something to do with an alternative public sphere, a new understanding of rights, new legal frameworks, new structures of policymaking. And actually, in 2001, uh, Brazil added a right to the city in its constitution. I think it partly has to do with the fact that urbanization is just such a uh, hellish process, unstoppable yeah. process, that is absolutely forcing everybody to think about this. Um, and, uh, and then also, I think it has something to do maybe with other forces like uh, um, refugees and immigration and so on. But the legal impact of it and on notions of citizenship um, are very interesting and, and um, uh, sort of overturning a lot of our, uh, or pushing against a lot of our, our classic notions. To put, to put an edge on this, um, it kind of is a moment where where right wingers have to choose not to be too um, hmm. ideolo ideological about this, but you know, there's this argument of you know we don't like government action because it's distant and far away, like centralized federal action, and mm -hmm. you know this is what a lot of conservatives and, and libertarians argue for, and you know. Folks who care about Catholic social justice have a tiny, have a, at least a bit of a, you know, the conversation can be had because of the desire for subsidiarity and distributism. But that whole argument is belied when, um, when it's an argument on a very local level mm -hmm. about, say, should people have a right to stay in their homes, even if they're renters and the rent got you know, ah. because a lot of, I think the right to the city is about evictions. Yes, you know, true. it's about, true. Um, it's about, do you have a right to be in the neighborhood where you and your parents were in? Yep. Do you have a right to not be yep. pushed out of your neighborhood? And, and this is a moment where folks have to decide, you know, this is not a uh, this is a centralized authority taking people out of their homes in the name of the market. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just the centralized authority is a banker. It's um, a real estate developer. And, and we have to decide, you know, are we more loyal to, are we more loyal to the conservative principle of like stability in a neighborhood, 
and like people being able to have pride in place and people able to own the place that they live um, and be a part of it? Or are we more loyal to this abstract idea of, you know, market forces and the like? And because it takes away the, the, the distance argument because it's people who just want to be in their place. Um, and, um, and yeah, and a lot of that comes down to evictions and, and there are fights happening here. It's not just in the favelas. It's, it's happening with gentrification. Sure. It's happening with, um, with, uh, alternatives like community land trusts. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's happening. It's happening. in you know, I'm from a, I'm from a bougie town where there's not a lot of evictions. I'm from the suburbs of DC and false church, but there's a whole fight in my town right now about just the right to, have the citizens of Falls Church decide what stores are on Main Street if there's going to be a Target. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. Or, you know, in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, they're having a fight on if the Walmart's going to come or not. Yeah. And, um, and so mm. do we get to decide what our city is? You know? <laughs> and, um, yeah. yeah very, know, it's a very exciting fight um, but, and very important. I, I really had not much connected urbanization and the whole sort of critique of neoliberalism and so on over the last half century or so. But, you know, I, I was reading Harvey's article called Right to the City, and he's pointing out, you know, we, we, we often have uh, happy thoughts of going to visit uh, modern-day Paris. Modern-day Paris, the city of light, actually is the Paris that was built at, beginning in 1853 when Baron Haussmann was employed by uh, Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte uh, who comes into power uh, after the crisis of 1848, a tremendous economic social crisis in 1848. Yeah. And, and, and uh, Bonaparte, this is the second Bonaparte, the, ne- the nephew, <laughs> um, <laughs> he, he decides a big infrastructure program is needed. Uh, we are going to um, uh, do uh, urbanization. We're going, to, we're going to gentrify. We're going to improve things. And so that starts up until there is another crash in 1868 and then Napoleon III goes to war against Bismarck and loses the war at which point there is the uprising of the Paris Commune in 1871 uh, which was a big one so so with, with Marx and Engels and everybody Engels and everybody watching you know yeah. so so Harvey is saying what's not much remembered is that that Paris Commune uprising was partly residents who remembered the old Paris, and they were wow. dispossessed and eager to try to retake it. So really, that uprising was not only about you know uh, bread and water. It was about um, it was about what happened to our city and how did we get dispossessed and how can we stop these forces. And then I think about what happened with Robert Moses. What almost happened with Robert Moses in Greenwich Village when Jane Jacobs. You know, a, a mere housewife, as she was described at the time, with, with a kind of a hobby of urban planning, organizes the neighborhood and stops the most powerful guy in the city of Manhattan. Yeah. So it's, it's extraordinary how far this plays into um, sort of the rise of the modern neoliberal state. And, and uh, Harvey even wonders if the rise of suburbia wasn't part of the uprisings back in 1968. Um, in in this country, just just the kind of cultural uh, revulsion from where all that was going and what it was doing to the cities. 
Oh, he thinks like people move to the suburbs because they want definitely, to feel that. Definitely. I mean, you I mean know, this, this was this was social engineering. This is the extraordinary yeah. thing about suburban life today, uh, which is sometimes held up as a, a wonderful example of libertarian um, success. Um, yeah. and it has its defenders. I think the other view of it is, and this is a you know, sometimes it's taken to be kind of a harsh view, that it was also white flight, of course. And yeah. it was also a um, a mortgage interest deduction, you know, a, a some, something that engineered the tax code in order to push for home ownership, which certainly seems like a, an innocuous um, and even a productive idea. But it was used to um, also uh, leave the cities in the predicament that they uh, ended with, um, along with a num- number of other sort of environmentally um, unpleasant, unsustainable consequences. Yeah. You know, it, it makes me think, you know, we need to, it, it's so funny, you know, it's all these people that are destroying these places. They're so into data and like measuring well-being data and this, that, and the other profitability and the like. Yeah. But it might be great to measure, do a national pride of place hmm. um, survey. Uh-huh that track over time, you know, simple questions like, are you proud to be part of your neighborhood on a scale of one to five? Are you proud to be part of your city? Are you proud to be part of your, your state and see which places, you know, see how much, how much, what percentage of, uh, you know, it reminds me of James Howard Kunstler. It's like what percentage of people now are in places that they're not like, they don't even know, you know, there's some people that I bet live in places they don't even know what city they're in. That's right. You know, because there's such sprawl. Oh, I don't know. Right. I think I'm near the city. You know, I'm just off the highway. You I know, mean, they're they're living in no place. It's essentially a there's no identity to the place at all. Yeah, right. right. And it's such a you know, and uh, and yeah, and 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 track that as like a something to measure. You know, because it's like and how, you know, when people are you know are opening up these these no place businesses and in places, you know, instead yeah. of having pride of place businesses and pride of place entities. And- you know, I, th- I think pride of place, uh, some people would say um, it, it is present in places where some of us would be unlikely to think uh, you could find it. And I, there's an example of this that happened about a year and a half ago in my town when I convened a, a handful of people from what we would call in Valparaiso a, quote, bad neighborhood. Yeah. The, the bad neighborhood is a very mixed neighborhood. There's really very little crime of any kind in Valparaiso, but such as there is goes on around, you know, probably three or four blocks of this neighborhood. Um, so it has it has a bad rep. Um, we got some some residents together, including a wonderful character who was the postman. And the postman had a, a little speech to make. And his speech was about his neighborhood hilltop, which is about 1,100 people. And he said, what I want to tell you is that, first of all, this is the most diverse neighborhood uh, for quite a few miles around. We not only are black, white, and brown, we are Asian, all kinds of Asian, and other things that you would not believe. Um, And not everybody is aware of it, but because the, the neighborhood is relatively affordable, there's a lot of riddle property and a handful of sort of nice older homes. It's really very mixed, and it's tremendously uh, diverse in a cultural sense. And then the other thing he had to tell us is that this neighborhood with the bad rep 
um, he believes is the city's best kept secret. Uh, the, the, the residents don't even particularly want to share it with the rest of the community. The fact that, according to the postman, this is the neighborhood where people get together and help each other and don't need yep. much coaching because they all have this kind of sense that we have got to get through this together somehow. So despite the fact that there's a fair amount of rental property, it's somewhat transient, this is the neighborhood that really has the most social capital. Um, it was a terrific endorsement. And, you know, I, I, people say that um, urban renewal, this term that was used back in the 60s and 70s, the thing that Jane Jacobs was pushing back against, um, meant taking out neighborhoods which, for whatever reasons, might have been displeasing to the developers, but there was all this social capital and all of uh, this important self-support going on, which then got obliterated. Yeah, no, it's, it, they can't see, it's like, they're such obsessive measurers that they, it, it doesn't hit into their measurements of what is valuable. Yeah. Yeah. It's nothing to them. You know, it's not only that their measurements are, are wrong, it's that it, it's not only that what they're measuring is wrong. They're so obsessed with their measuring that it really puts the blinders on to seeing these wonderful things that are happening everywhere. You know, yes, that's like, right. you know, a good example is like post offices and schools. If you see a post office as um, or a library, if you see a post office or a library or a school as like a single metric, like throughput of envelopes number of books checked out and like, like test score improvement. Yeah. You know, maybe some post offices, libraries and schools are failing, but if you see them as a civic infrastructure, that's part of an organic place. That's right. You might see the postman is the one who finds, you know, checks on elderly people with their medicine. The library is a place yeah. that feels safe for some young kids and a, and a school is a stable place to have meetings, you know, and like, and uh, and brings people together and the like, you know, and um, yes. that's what's uh, that's hiding with these places. I love that story. That's great. We gotta, you know, I'm all I'm all for like bringing back, you know, like state funding of like uh, uh, art, to, like for pride of place art, like Grant Wood. Yes, <laughs> we need to yes. we need to have like the official portrait of the neighborhood. You know, no, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um. Yeah, it's it's a it's a delicate calculation in my state of Indiana. It's a delicate calculation to try to figure out, and this is a genuine problem. What is the population number below which we probably are not coming back? Oh that's, yeah, that's interesting. In each city. Yep. So we're down to. I mean, you can find places, many, many, many places in Indiana that are somewhere around ten thousand, eight thousand, six thousand. And the trend continues in that direction. Now, there's, I don't know what the right number is. You might argue, theoretically, it's somewhere around maybe 20, 25,000. If you have, if the city has some kind of bones, if it looks like something other than a big mall, um, that's good. That's one piece. A second piece is some kind of economic activity. You, you can't be just completely bereft of commerce, you know? Yeah. And, and third... There's got to be some history of local citizens, families being involved and giving. Yes. And, right? And it seems like if you have those three ingredients, you might make it. And if you yes. don't, yeah. 
it's really going to be tough. Yeah. This is, you know, it, it reminds, it's like, um, this must be a big, this makes me think, Elias, that this is what's drawing you to, to civics because, and these types yeah. of questions. Yeah. Because you're seeing it in Indiana. You know, I'm not oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. like I, I only read about this stuff. I'm, I'm from two places that haven't been hit by that. But mm-hmm. but civics is one of the elements of kind of post-industrial revival, I guess. So. That's right. Well, you're right about placemaking. I mean, there, there is kind of a, an idea that there's a certain kind of magic. Uh, there's a kind of a pixie dust in a can you can buy. And if you're good with it, you will take your awful dilapidated mostly shuttered uh, downtown <laughs> and yep. you'll, you'll do startup stuff and you'll pop up stuff and you'll make things happen. And in giving it that kind of push, there are cases, the city of Memphis actually is one where the word this happened, this worked and Memphis has in, I understand in many ways been sort of restarted uh, after looking like it was about to uh, go into kind of a death spiral. So, so there are stories like that. Um, but here's the tricky bit. The tricky bit is when placemaking really is um, hand in glove with a kind of gentrification. And so this is a very, very tough thing to, to manage because it would seem, certainly uh, Chuck Marone and Strong Towns would argue, that gentrification um, is in a way kind of a neutral thing. It isn't so simple to say it's either good or bad. It's something more to do with um, how it is managed and, you know, how many people the process benefits. In other words, can you engineer this process so that it doesn't, um, you know, benefit just a handful of developers and new residents and everybody else is marooned. Um, But it turns out to be tough to do because there are a lot of competing interests um, and there are a lot of people who would just flatly argue gentrification is an unalloyed good. Really? Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, yeah, yeah. So that's tough to, it's tough to get around because they don't get that social capital thing. They don't get, you know, the kind of communitarian thing. Um, it's just all about, um, you know, value of the land and uh, those kinds of measurements. Well, it's 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 also this question of it's a it's a confusion of the goal of reviving a city is not to make that plot of land have more activity. <laughs> it's like if you if you you could do that by you know forcing everyone to leave and moving that's right another group of a thousand people there right. you know that's that right. have different income you that's know right. uh, uh, that's not like that's what sometimes the trick is you know it's like. The real question is it's a sub-mix of those thousand people as individuals, their relationships, and the land itself. You know, it's and um, yeah, yeah. and yeah, how do you how do you preserve that? You know, it's um, if they're advantaged by the new hipster coffee shop, you know, then that's great. That's good gentrification. If, if they're pushed out by it, you know, that's the worst. So. Yep, exactly. Um, there are places, sort of planned communities, planned neighborhoods. Um, one that I, I really want to go see, I, I haven't quite had a chance to take a close look, but down near Indianapolis, there is Carmel, Indiana. And Carmel, Carmel looks like um, some sort of um, beautiful kingdom that dropped from the sky. You know, it's, it's shiny and new and monumental. 
um, kind of a small Versailles. <laughs> <laughs> and just, you know, hugely in debt, just, just in debt, you know, over the horizon. Um, and yet everybody looks at each other and says, well, didn't this work out well? <laughs> <laughs> So it's actually a success story, or are you being ironic? Well, no. <laughs> like, I mean, it's 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 probably um, moving into kind of a red zone where uh, they're going to realize that this this thing <laughs> is not sustainable. There's no way to pay yeah, for yeah. what we just put up, which is really most of the message of Strong Towns. We're building places that are not sustainable either from an environmental point of view or from a fiscal point of view. They don't make they're not productive in the true sense, you know. Yeah. Well, it's like I guess. I've heard Strongtown said some things about like buildings, investing in buildings instead of people. Yeah, you know, right. it's um, it's right. it's a short-term win for a politician to build a new fancy building. Exactly. Uh, they yeah. can put, put their name on it, and uh, you can't put your name on like slowly bending the curve of social capital. No. <laughs> you know, no. over slow and steady over time. No, that's right. How how to preserve the old neighborhood? It's a very very. Yeah challenging thing and then the other thing in the background uh and then maybe we'll we'll close out and take this up at a later time um i've been looking at the trailer of this upcoming documentary uh i don't know if you're aware of this but it's called human flow have you heard about this i haven't heard about no no tell me about it's a chinese um documentarian i forget the guy's name for the moment he's pretty well known but you can just imagine what this is it's two hours of high def movie footage from around the world and it is nothing but on the ground face-to-face footage in refugee camps wow yes and and debarkation points for immigrants um sicily you know down there and and you know some interactions some conversations some testimonials but i i I can just not imagine i cannot imagine what this is going to be like to watch for two hours because it's, it's just going to absolutely blow our minds. Yeah. You know, I, it makes me, um, one thing that, that makes me think about and and your mention of the favelas earlier and the informal city, yeah. um, is the idea that there's these, these places, you know, you don't want to say that these places that have been denied and disempowered, there's like some glory, there, you know, outside of the glory of, of the dignity of, of people and the fact that, you know, these are humans, you don't want to, uh, you know, uh, call it precious or anything. But the, the reality is that these places are teeming with life. They're teeming with ideas. They're teeming with civic leaders and they're teeming with intelligence and genius and creativity. And, um, and we, what we need to do, what we often do with these places is we try to discipline them. You know, we try to say, like, we need to bring law in here and all of this needs to stop, you know, like and like, of course, you want like violence to stop. But like what instead we should be doing is cultivating them, you know, cultivating and developing in the deeper sense of development. You know, like I talked to someone who was in one of the, you know, who lived in a version of this in America and, you know, they were a weed dealer. And I was asking them to describe their process of, you know, growing the weed and dealing it. And it's totally creative. He goes, oh, you know, I learned all the details. I I bought the lights. I I saved up money to buy the lights. I I did the thing, you know. Um, I I got really into different ways to grow. And, you know, um, I was like, this is just just a creative person who's doing the thing that is available to him. 
and we have to just we have to we have to see that. And I know this is very abstract, but we have to see the the genius and the connections and the um, in these places, you know, and and raise up raise up their leaders and preserve the preserve the. Um, the, the informal institutions out of there and, and don't see the law as disciplining, but seeing it as, Hey, law can help law and mm-hmm. law can help uh, steal uh, these connections for you. They can help make this stronger, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, that, that is real um, uh, civic capacity where, where you have the freedom to, you know, create, interact, uh, build, um, uh, that's what it once was. That, that's the libertarian dream, I guess, kind of in a sense. And kind of tying it back to our, our opening, there is a kind of legal anxiety, right? Legal and, and regulatory anxiety. So that it's though we, we just don't, you know, as Chuck Marone would say, we could not build our lovable cities again today. It would not be legally possible. Yeah. You know? How crazy is that? Yeah. So. That's very yeah. That's sad. Like yeah, you know, I think about all these wonderful institutions that that we were so be- we're so lucky we inherited because they could never right. you know like Halloween. Look at how civic Halloween is. It's it's deeply <laughs> True. joyful. True. All the kids in America get dressed up in things, and that's everyone has a participation in every app. No yeah. one could have gotten that off the ground today. <laughs> we only could have inherited it, you know. Exactly. Um, and. Uh, yeah, so that's the hope. One, one, one thing on what's the difference between laws disciplining and laws activating is uh, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about the word infrastructure. This is kind of my hobby horse this last two weeks. Is I heard iGen, this might be all over the place, but I feel like this might be a good thing to uh, close with. Okay. iGen Poo, who's the head of the Domestic Workers Alliance, was oh, yeah. talking to Ezra Klein on a podcast. And she said she's really into the caring economy. She's into um, taking care of kids and taking care of elders and the future of that. And she said elder care and child care is part of the infrastructure of, of the economy. Mm-hmm. She, um, and if we strengthen that, we're strengthening the infrastructure of the economy. And she said infrastructure is that which facilitates commerce. And you can think about this in a civic sense. It doesn't have to be a very market sense. Like it facilitates community and commerce is infrastructure. And the lack of infrastructure privatizes all those things so that everyone has to deal with them alone. When you have infrastructure, it takes that burden off of you, does it together, and lets you focus on the things you actually care about. Um, and so strengthening elder care, you know, not that you don't care about elder care, but like strengthening elder care and giving people some more security around it will help them feel, you know, that people are being, you know, people are taken care of. They have a system in which there's enough money to help people out. And thus they're, they're, um, they're free to, you know, keep interacting with the world. And, um, I was thinking about this broadened sense of infrastructure, that infrastructure is like, what is thinking about what can we do together to make community and commerce more facilitated that everyone is burdened with privately. So for example, a basic one with like favelas and, and others is like security is privatized when you have an informal yeah. kind of place. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And secure, it means everyone has to, instead of like thinking about just raising their families or running their shops or doing their community projects, they also have to like 
think about their bodyguard and think about, you know, how we protect ourselves. If you can have community-based security together, then you're freed up to do things. That's infrastructure. And what our infrastructure is, is facilitating rather than disciplining systems. And how can we make it, how can we have infrastructure as a disciplining order? Which is a form of civic trust. And of course, there is a great uh, scarcity of trust practically anywhere you look. Uh, but certainly in terms of the kind of overbearing nature sometimes of um, government regulation, disempowering people from, um, you know, creating their own solutions and looking out for each other and feeling free to do so. Amen. You know. All right. We'll stop right there. A good one. A great chat. Great. Be, be well. We'll be back you too. everybody soon. And uh, be well in the meanwhile. Great. See everyone soon. Bye, Pete.